This is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Jabot. Guess where we are? London Northwest 8. It's the home of world cricket, and today it's the home of the Inter-Services T20 Tournament. Yes, we're at Lords. We ventured out of the studio and into the famous Test Match commentary box. We'll be talking cricket and the military, but let's not forget, there's sometimes a rather unsporting world beyond Northwest 8. Welcome to Lords, the home of cricket, from where we'll bring you all our usual roundup of the week's defence issues, mixed in with the lovely sound of leather on willow. I'm joined by Secretary of the Combined Services Sports Board, Colonel Bede Grossmith, Director of the Migration Research Unit at University College London, Professor John Salt, Military Strategist Professor Eric Grove, and of course BFBS Defence Analyst and MCC member Christopher Lee. Welcome to you all. Colonel B. Grossmith, what's the IST20 all about then? Uh, it's a major event in our sporting calendar, a big, very big one. It's a pleasure, of course, to be here at Lords. Um, it started about seven or eight years ago, and it is really the Navy and the Army and the Air Force battling out for the Inter-Services Trophy. And it's a result that we get all in one day, as in comparison with perhaps the other events that we have, where we have an over over 50 uh, 50 over format for our under 25s and our senior teams and our ladies teams. Professor John Salter, you a cricket fan? Oh yes, very much so. I come from a family of played cricket um, most weekends. Uh, it's always a pleasure to come to Lords, and on a day like this, it's absolutely gorgeous. And you, Eric Grove? Uh, not so much cricket, but I do take, pay, pay a lot of attention to what happens on Australian cricket grounds in their winter because I'm a great Australian rules football supporter. <laughs> and I have been to the MCG, the Melbourne, the Melbourne cricket ground, to actually see the grand final two years ago. Of course, Christopher, we know you're a fan. Um, when did military bosses first decide that it, soldiers, sailors and airmen should do some sport like this? Well, it wasn't the airmen so much because they weren't invented then, um, but it was the, the Victorians. And if you, if you look what happened, the Victorian army was in a pretty rough state. And the, certainly the army said, look, let's play cricket. And we can bring a lot of people into, in, in, into, into unison. And then, of course, in India, after the Sepoy Rebellion, 1850s, um, then they taught the Indians to play cricket. And again, because they were trying to bring the Sepoys much further into the British army style of things, they thought this was a good thing to do. And so it continued that way, right the way through all sorts of sports, right the way through, and we were discussing earlier, uh, in, in everything you did. And my father, when he joined the army, his colonel said to him, I want you to hunt two days a week. <laughs> so it's not just cricket. Mm, sounds like it's getting a bit exciting out there. It's getting exciting. We've got, what we've got at the moment, we've got the Navy, and then we've got the, uh, the Royal Air Force. Uh, the Royal Air Force batting, the Navy bowling, not, not in a very distinguished manner. I sometimes think that the poor old Navy, uh, they find it very difficult mm. to keep a side together, to get a lot of training in. It's a smaller unit than, than the army who beat it in the previous round. 
um, and they have enough time, uh, difficulty, actually getting normal naval training in, never mind cricket training. We'll have more on the cricket later, but first, this morning, David Anderson QC delivered to Prime Minister Cameron his report on how the intelligence services can collect email and telephone information against terrorism without compromising public privacy. Uh, Christopher, what's in this report and how much weight does it hold? It, it weight enormously. Uh, David Anderson is the sort of, if you like, the watchdog. And the basic principle is uh, you want the intelligence services to gather as much information as it can against terrorism. And it comes under a, a 2011 act called the uh, Terrorism Prevention Investigation Measures. Um, but it mustn't interfere with the, the rights of people to have normal conversations, to have normal uh, emails that are answered, scrutinized by, by all the investigation services. The importance of this, as you said, it's gone to the Prime Minister. Normally his report would go to the, to go to the Commons, to go to the House of Parliament. It's gone to the Prime Minister because the Prime Minister is, has promised that there has to be a new bill that will balance getting information how you get information without intruding on the privacy of the people. Well, let's now turn our attention to Europe's migration crisis. The crew of Royal Navy assault ship HMS Bulwark has rescued at least 2,500 migrants from the Mediterranean so far. Professor Johnson, just remind us exactly what HMS Bulwark has been doing. Well, it's been picking up migrants coming in relatively small boats but containing large numbers of migrants, often hundreds, um, who are sometimes adrift uh, in, in the Mediterranean Sea. They don't have water or food. Uh, there's very little chance, quite often, of them going any further, so they, they're there waiting to, uh, waiting to be picked up. And, of course, without Bulwark and uh, some of the ships, from, uh, particularly from, from the Italian Navy, there would be lots more people being killed. There are thousands have already been killed this year, but something like uh, latest figures suggest that around about 100,000 people have come over across the Mediterranean Sea, mm. um, both to Italy and to Greece. And as the director of the Migration Research Unit at University College London, someone who's been studying this issue for, for a long time, do you see these numbers as the thin end of the wedge at the moment? No, I, I, I think the... It's probably the thick end of the wedge in, in that uh, it, it's not easy to see the numbers uh, escalating very dramatically. There's been such an increase over the last 12 months or so uh, that uh, the market for more people to come and also the increasing efforts by uh, countries in Europe to prevent them coming will begin to have an effect, I suspect, but it really does depend at the end of the day on what happens in war-torn countries, in places with lots of destitution and very little, very little hope for a better future. And if you can get somewhere better, then you're going to try. Professor Eric Grove, is that, what, is that the root of it? It's unstable countries and it's people that really simply have no other option but to leave and risk their lives in doing so? Absolutely. I mean, I mean one hears from the 
from the poor people themselves, you know, in fact some people leave their families because they see absolutely no future. I mean, in, in northern Nigeria you're in danger of being having your head cut off, similarly in, the, in various parts of the Middle East. And there are lots of areas. Now I think the government might be onto something when it says we ought to direct our aid program into making sure that there aren't the same incentives to, to come here. But it's a much deeper, deeper problem. Much of Africa is in chaos. Uh, Yemen is, is in chaos. The Middle East is in chaos. And in these circumstances, a lot of people are going to see Europe as a haven of stability and try to get some, some slice of the cake. Christopher Lee, um, I guess, really, given the situation that's just been painted, it's no surprise when we were talking about this this situation two years ago. That's right, and it's interesting because I, mean, the, the, I don't necessarily mean the Italians are taking the lead on this at the moment, but the Italians are being forced to do quite a lot of the work. And there was a study done at the University of Perugia, which we picked up a couple of years ago, which basically said this. You were going to get lots of migrants crossing the Mediterranean, and they'd already started, and they're going to come from, and the countries we now suspect, they were going to come from Syria, they come from the Middle East, they were going to come from the Horn of Africa. And because Libya had gone wrong, they're going to come through there. They then said, well, look, we've got to actually get at the people that are organising them to come, the facilitating them to come, otherwise we can't do it. They then said, and this is two years ago, what we actually need is in the Mediterranean a combined force, a task force almost, under one commander with simple terms of reference of what we're going to do about this. And that was the position two years ago. Not a great deal has advanced then except the setting up of a command system uh, under a rear apple at the moment, of, uh, an Italian rear apple as well. Professor John Salt, is Europe's approach the right one? Should it be doing something else? Sounds well, like just, just before you answer that, something rather dramatic, I think, has just happened <laughs> on the pitch. Well, I'll tell you what's happening is the RAF is taking apart the Navy's bowling. <laughs> and uh, the way the Navy is bowling, it would be, it would be rude not to. <laughs> Be rude not to mention it anyway. Um, yes, Europe's approach on the whole crisis at the moment, is, is it taking the right line? Well, yes, except that it's only doing the first half of it. Uh, they've taken the right line in trying to save lives. I mean, that, that, I think, goes without saying. What they're not doing is deciding what the consequences will be, um, what happens to the people that they do pull out. Uh, one view is that... Uh, the more you help people by stopping dying, the more likely it is you'll encourage other ones to come. What we have to realise is that what's going on is a very clever, very well-organised, large-scale business. Uh, you you described it earlier, just talking to you before yes. this programme, as a, kind of a, a sort of global kind of business that's coming together and maturing them to a certain extent. That's right. The, the business... Uh, in many ways, it encourages the demand, it helps people find the money to, uh, to, to come with the smugglers, it transports them, uh, and to some extent it tells them what to do when they get to the other end, and in some cases it actually helps them do that. It's very well organised, it's highly technological. Very and so how do you smash that business? Well, you... Not simply by destroying the boats? No, you have to do it by bilateral agreements with the people that are... Uh, the, the states from which the people are coming. If you can't stop uh, the, the thing at the, at the origin, then you're already in trouble. Now, when Gaddafi was in power in Libya, there was an agreement which more or less stopped the people coming. Uh, nowadays, the, it's beyond my, uh, my pay grade, but how far you can engage with uh, 
the Libyan shore is, is a matter that people around this, this table might mm. be able to throw more light on that. Something, something we'll come back to again. Uh, lot, lots more to talk about that. Gentlemen, stay with us. Still to come, military history at the Lord's Museum. And why is sport so important to the British forces? Russian President Vladimir Putin is in Italy and has had a meeting with both the Italian Prime Minister and the Pope. So does he really expect a blessing for his policy on Ukraine? Professor Eric Grove, why has President Putin gone to Italy? Well, he has friends in Italy uh, and uh, he's trying, I think, to sort of drive a wedge within the European European Union. He has friends in Greece as well. In fact, he has friends in opposition parties, even in the United Kingdom. Uh, UKIP was uh, something of a friend of Mr Putin's. And he's using every opportunity to try mm. to break down a common EU-slash-NATO line yes. against his aggression in Ukraine. And, Christopher, that wedge he's trying to drive in, uh, presumably, is because the sanctions are due, or the agreement on the sanctions are due for renewal. Well, that's partly it. But, you know, the, there's a 50-year history of the Italians being um, being involved in what was going on in Russia or originally then the Soviet Union. The other thing to remember is that Italy, Italy is Russia's third trading partner. And when you consider that the Chinese uh, is, a, is another, um, then you've got to think it's a very important thing for the Italians whose economy is not in very good condition. Matteo Renzi, the, the Italian uh, prime minister, has been told by Putin, listen, if you vote for further sanctions in the EU, then you're probably going to lose out on about, I don't know, a billion, in, a billion uh, euros in future contracts. And what happened when the G7 uh, said they were going to put more pressure on, on, on the uh, Russians, then Mattia Renzi uh, stood down and he did not vote for them. So you think much could come out of this visit? Um, well, it's interesting, interesting, isn't he? And he's also seen the Pope. Um, and, and, and Pope Why France, did he meet the Pope? Well, I mean, it, it is, it's the sort of thing that you do. Um, you've, it, meeting the Pope is a great sort of... Uh, I mean, considering that it's still not a, 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 an easy thing to do for, for Putin, who has a, a very strange relationship with the Church. But go back. He's really sort of saying, going back to Stalin, you know. When Stalin was told... Now listen, uh, you cannot do what you intend to do in Europe. The Pope won't like it. Stalin said, and how many divisions does the Pope have? And it's to some extent, this is what we're seeing, uh, seeing now, is that I am Putin, I go where I like, I go in Europe. Don't keep me out of it. And Putin tries, of course, to put himself forward as this bastion of old-fashioned moral rectitude in Russia. <laughs> I mean, he sees, I mean, there is a sort of, this sort of spiritual side, close association with the Orthodox Church, blasphemy charges against people who do odd things in cathedrals and this kind of thing. And this is part of his image that he tries to cultivate to maintain his popularity. Yeah, yeah, what he's doing on this visit is, is a different message to the one he gave when he spoke and said, um, you know, you don't need to be scared of Russia or worse to that effect to the rest of Europe. But what, what's his long game here, Christopher? I tell, you, uh, I tell you what Putin knows very well. He's been looking, I'm sure, at some of the latest opinion polls throughout Europe and in the United States. In the United Kingdom, for example, there's only a 49% support, apparently, from opinion polls for NATO when there was something like a 60. Germany, it's down to 
Um, you also go to the United States. Now, the United States, 73% of the United States defense spending goes into NATO, but only 49% of Americans uh, support NATO at the moment. And what is happening is that you're finding that countries in, in NATO, 28 countries in NATO, saying you'll have a dang hard job getting us all to sign up for any military opposition to what's going on in Ukraine, especially against the, uh, against the Russians. Um, and President Putin mm. is not a dimbo, he knows exactly And Putin that. has to appear aggressive because he knows that that goes down well in Russia. The main... How the popular main, is he at home at the very, moment? Very, very. I mean, the, in fact, the, the more awkward he is and the more he's trying to make Russia great again in imperial terms, the more popular he is. However, there are some straws in the wind which are not so favourable. I was talking to somebody who, who knows Russia very well yesterday, and apparently Belarus and Kazakhstan, his two major allies, are beginning to be a little bit quiet about supporting him. Mm. And so his position may not be that secure, but then he knows the best the best way he can maintain support is to maintain his aggressive policy towards the West. So the outlook at, at that level is not, too, is not too promising. The United States is sending 450 additional military personnel to Iraq to fight Islamic State militants. The troops will be based in Anbar province, but they won't serve in a combat role. Um, Christopher Lee, whose neck is Obama trying to save here? <laughs> Uh, well, it's not going to save. Uh, it's not going to save anybody but who wants to be saved, and that is the the Iraqi uh, government itself. He he needs to he needs to support the Iraqi government. But the problem is, we have an irony, and that is that the some of the most effective opposition to IS in Iraq uh, has come from Iran. Uh, Iran militia, commanded by one of the best uh, generals in Iran. And you have an irony, although you've got air power, although you've got another 175 British troops going in as trainers, um, you have an irony that you've got America trying to do a single job with one of its allies that you wouldn't normally call an ally, and that is Iran. America and the West in general have got themselves into a terrible tangle in that part of the world. They're supporting really different sides in different places. There's the hope in Syria we can, send, we can set up some kind of moderate army, but the more Assad is weakened, it's, not, it, it's the jihadis. In fact, you might soon have um, America helping support an al-Qaeda affiliate, the al-Nusra Front. Uh, which, which sounds preposterous as an idea. Preposterous. Of course it is. And, uh, and as Chris has just explained so well, I mean, the, the problem is it's the, it's the Iranians who are the strong forces. The Iraqi army is a busted flush. If you give it weapons, they, they virtually go over to ISM after they evacuate their next place. Leadership is terrible. It's it, was, it became very corrupt under the previous, previous Maliki regime. And just giving them air support, although IS is vulnerable to some extent, this is a state, it's not really just a guerrilla movement, nonetheless... Um, it's going to be very difficult to do anything serious against IS until we get troops on the ground who are, who are capable, and those troops on the ground are Iranian-supported. Professor John Salt. Well, I think it's important to remember that these things we've just been talking about are actually related to what HMS Bulwark is doing. Uh, it's the continuing support of Putin for Assad in Syria, for example, is almost certainly prolonged the war which may have ended rather more quickly and has created an enormous outflow of people from Syria into neighbouring states with a knock-on effect from there. And the great power machinations in other parts of the Middle East and even in Libya 
are completely related to the fact that we have this humanitarian crisis in southern Europe. Christopher. I'm just thinking that um, this week, uh, President Assad in Syria has seems to come to a, a conclusion or an acceptance of something which was obvious earlier. It could be that Syria will be a federal, two federal states. He could lose, if you like, um, the eastern part of Syria. And it could be that that area on the east, which has got Damascus in it, has got uh, uh, his hometowns of uh, Latakia in it, where, where his, his branch of of, of uh, the Alawites, the Alawites come from. Now, how is he going to do that? Well, he has been talking, talking to the Iranians. And it could be that there would be an official Iranian presence, an army, not just a militia, but an army in in uh, in Syria to fight against uh, the, the the militias of the IS, etc. If that happens, then you can say we will probably see the official petition and say, look, we can hold on to this area and let the other guys uh, have, have the eastern part. But that would cause apoplexy in Tel Aviv, mm -hmm. which is another cross-cutting dispute which, he has, which, which has to be taken into account here. Right, let's move to matters back home, because today the inaugural ceremony has taken place of the Bastion Memorial honouring the 453 UK personnel who died in the Afghan conflict. Prince Harry, a veteran of the war, was at the National Memorial Arboretum today. Uh, Christopher, is this the completion of the Thanksgiving for this particular war? It's certainly the symbol to which everybody will turn later, when once a year or whenever, and I imagine once a year, um, that there will be services and it is a place for people to go who, who will grieve over that war. It also has something else, and that is not officially, but royal patronage in the form of, uh, of Prince Harry. And I think that is particularly important. It will, all be, all, will always be associated uh, with one of those long causes more than a decade, uh, about which we really don't know the outcome yet. Well, if you've just joined us and are wondering why we sound a little different today, it's because we are at Lord's Cricket Ground for the Inter-Service T20 tournament. My voice as well is just recovering. A little <laughs> earlier I went to the NCC Museum, one of the oldest sporting museums in the world, and I spoke to Neil Robinson, the NCC's collections officer. I asked him to talk me through some of the exhibits. Well, the connection between the museum and the, the military is, is actually long-standing. The museum was opened in 1953 initially as the Imperial Memorial Gallery, and it was dedicated to the memory of the cricketers of all nations who died in the two great wars of the 20th century. And in fact, we're standing right in front of that plaque, aren't we? That's right. Commemorating um, that. Commemorating the, the, the many fallen of the two great wars. And right underneath it, we have one of the, the two showcases we have, which contain objects linking lords and the military. Um, so you'll see we have here a, uh, a photograph album showing the, the various ways in which the, the ground, Lord's Ground, was used. So what we can see here is, is a picture of a person standing at the entrance to an air raid shelter. Um, just explain what's going on there exactly. Well, obviously, being in London, the, the ground was right in the, the, the target line for the Luftwaffe during the Second World War. 
we were very lucky. We weren't actually damaged by any bombs, although a couple of V1s did fall nearby. And Father Time, the famous weather vane, had, uh, was actually caught and entangled in the cable of a barrage balloon and dragged off his perch. I understand there was actually a bomb that landed just by Lords in the First yeah, World War. The, um, that's right, yes. The, we've, we've been very lucky to survive both times. The, the Zeppelin attacks in the, in the First World War were perhaps less severe on London generally, but we've, we've had some lucky escapes. You've also got some interesting letters here. Tell me about them. We've got some lovely correspondence written by the famous uh, Australian cricketer Keith Miller, who was known as a dashing all-rounder in the immediate aftermath of the, the Second World War. He'd actually flown mosquitoes during the war, and he was famous for saying afterwards that uh, there wasn't really any pressure in, cr- in cricket. <laughs> pressure was having a Messerschmitt up your ass. <laughs> Um, and this is a letter that he sent here. Yes, it, it's full of his character. It, it starts, Good day, Anki Derek, and it carries on in that inimitable Australian style. Can you just show me over to this cabinet over here and talk me through what you've got in here? Well, we've got a number of different items, a, a couple of bats in particular that are worth mentioning. One which was actually fashioned and, and homemade during the Second World War by the, the exiled staff of the British Embassy in Yugoslavia, who briefly were interned in Italy mm-hmm. um, prior to being repatriated to the UK as happened with all diplomats at the, at the outbreak of war. So for a few months they were holed up in Italy and uh, they obviously played cricket to pass the time using this um, rather crudely fra- uh, fashioned bat to, to assist them with their games. And the games. bat comes with all the stickers from the, the all, time, Hotel Bristol uh, on it and... Yes, they've, they've stayed in a place called Cinciano and uh, they've, they've obviously pasted stickers from the various hotels they stayed now, in. Now this bat here has holes in it it does. Uh, that is the bat of Sergeant Piggott. He was a, a non-commissioned officer in the trenches in the First World War. Um, obviously, cricket was a, another diversion that the troops used when they weren't directly in the firing line. This bat was sent out to him, but sadly it was damaged by shell fire before it could be used, and it has two rather major holes in it. So what did he do? Um, well, happily, he wasn't damaged by the shell fire, so he sent the bat back to England that a, a replacement was eventually sent out to him. No, Robinson, I know you're always on the lookout for more stuff. It's been great to have time with you to have a look at what you've got. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. That was Neil Robinson, the MCC's collections officer. Well, Colonel B. Grossmith is the secretary of the Combined Services Sports Board, and he's here with us. Um, good to see you, Colonel. Um, a cricketer yourself. Um, sport's still relevant to our fighting forces. Uh, and how difficult is it, though, in the time of defence cuts? Uh, there's still a lot of activity in sport across all sorts of uh, sports as well. There's a wide, we have about 45 sports that we participate in the armed forces, ranging from things like martial arts, judo, to the more popular ones, obviously, it's cricket, rugby and so on. Um, as a general rule, um, they're pretty well supported. We've moved back to a sort of contingent posture as we've come back from Afghanistan and, uh, and the like. Um, there, there's a possibility of sport really regenerating and providing a lot more um, for our servicemen to take, participate in. So it's, it's really healthy. Um, and actually, despite the fact that the Navy look as though they're on the, the losing side here, um, honours are often very evenly shared between the services, despite the Army being by far the largest. Uh, the Navy do punch above their weight, and the RF do very well for themselves as well. I mean, in terms of operational requirements, how much of an impact does it have on the health of a particular service's performance on the cricket pitch? Um, I think... Uh, the Navy at the moment have a problem with their availability, without a doubt. They're very, very committed, um, and I think, but they still manage to produce the goods. Um, I think we're still seeing good participation levels across all three services, um, and there's certainly a, a willingness amongst the hierarchy of the three services to make sure sport is done actively across all levels within their services. Is the hierarchy here today? 
Um, well, the army, I think, are up at uh, the National Arboretum in the main for, mm. the, for that particular mm. event. Um, but the rest of it, are well, they're, they're, they're sporting this event and traditionally do so very well. Do good sportsmen make good soldiers and vice versa? Um, I think certainly sports, sport contributes hugely to, the, uh, to, to military capability. And that's well acknowledged with the Chile Command. Um, because, you know, you get people, there's a will to win in sport, there's determination, there's courage, there's fitness, teamwork. You can rattle off a whole series of criteria that really feed in. And sport provides all that in a very nice environment, um, and that contributes to uh, you as a fighting unit in, in a sort of uh, very different style. I suppose in, m in many ways that's why you often see so many veterans taking up sport when they leave the forces as well and becoming, you see so many walking with the wounded for example, people taking part in, in, in various expeditions. In terms of rehabilitation for our injured and wounded, it's fantastic. There are some great, great stories where soldiers have, have felt the whole world has collapsed in upon them and they've found sport as an outlet and have moved on and actually got up to national. We've had Paralympic, we've had people in the Paralympics and both winter and summer. And that's a fantastic tribute to, to the character of the serviceman. But he's realised that sport's an outlet that allow him to rebuild his life. And there are many, many circumstances. Christopher Lee. Just thinking, um, when, uh, weren't you telling me about somebody who's gone off to play, somebody in the Royal Air Force has gone off to play for Worcester County Cricket Club? Yep. Well, there's a, the man a here. pretty high standard. Who's batting at the moment called <laughs> Sesford. Um, and he spent two years with Worcester. And the RF were able to release him for that. And I'll tell you, he's just hit a six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, he's hit it against the Navy. Yeah. Um, and we've but got, I we think get other examples like that. For instance, there's Rocco, who's playing rugby for Bath, and actually got an England cap the other day. Mm. Now, that's a wonderful sort of statement to make to the services, to the outside world. But actually, he brings back stuff to his unit, which is very important. So you wouldn't rather they stayed in? You're quite happy for them to go out and fly the flag? Yeah, but the, the, we are talking about the extreme elite here. Um, so we're talking about ones and twos. What happens at grassroots level is absolutely vital to build that foundation, and there's a lot of activity. I'm just fascinated. On a day like today, in your role, can you be impartial, or do you have to support who you support? I am totally impartial. My <laughs> army background has absolutely no, no relevance to this match. Kelly, no. great, great to speak to you. We'll see who wins. Uh, well, that's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests, Colonel B. Grossmith, Professor John Salt, Professor Eric Grove, and, of course, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Gentlemen, you're now free to go and watch the rest of today's play. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter, and you can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP or download the podcast from iTunes. We're back at the same time next week, but for now, from me, Kate Chabot, at most, thanks for listening. News. News. Sports. Sports. And music, music. for the British forces. <laughs>